Welcome to the Healthcare Nation podcast. I'm your host, Rick Janata, and we're committed to bringing you thought leaders in the field to discuss what's new and noteworthy in the health sector. This is the Healthcare Nation podcast. Hey, welcome to the Healthcare Nation podcast. Your host, Rick Janata, here with our producer, Joe Woolworth. Joe, how are you doing, my friend? I'm doing well. I know you've got some questions teed up. I think, you know, the markets have been on your mind yeah. and what's happening. So let's hear it. Yeah. First question, the the U.S. downgrade that happened recently. And I want to know your thoughts on the implications for this specific downgrade to the healthcare sector, including healthcare delivery, medtech and biotech. Yeah. And we'll just we'll unpack and put investment in that as well. I think first off, look. Risk perception, that's what I think is going to be the overarching thought process that I'm saying is going to be influenced by this decision, particularly in the health sector, and how that relates to investment. So if I was to go deeper on that, I would say, and this is, I'm not an expert, these are my thoughts, I don't believe this is expected to cause this some mass sell-off of treasury holdings, but the perception of increased risk may very well affect investors' decisions in the short and long term. I mean, that's just the reality. So I think a perceived increase in risk could lead to this tightening of capital markets and a potential reduction in cash flowing into the investment side of of the health sector. So what about healthcare costs overall? Uh, Look, concerns around the deficit, which pre-existed before this downgrade, could, could be exacerbated and spark more debate not only politically, but amongst other other circles in the investment community about controlling healthcare costs, which could potentially lead to tighter budgets and spending cuts. So that's a reality. And how, how do you, you cross a line from there to what the government would do? It could impact Medicare and Medicaid. So what about our favorite topic? How does how does this downgrade in the U.S. affect innovation in the space? Yeah. So look, we talk about tech and innovation. We're, we're getting ready to have our next podcast focus on that as well. If I think about med tech and biotech innovation specifically, we know this, they heavily depend on a mix of public and private funding, mostly private funding, right? I mean, public has kind of shrunken down when you think about the government's role. And I do believe there's going to be this kind of caution and, and and maybe trepidation as we move forward due to the increased risk perception that I that I mentioned earlier. And this could slow down the rate of innovation ultimately if you if you extrapolate that out. Will this blunt, you know, the development of new technologies and treatments? I don't think so, because there'll always be funding for a good idea. But like anything, I think when there's this this fear factor, this risk component that's in there, it can, you know, cast this pall over it that could have some some not necessarily long-standing, but some short-term influence. Yeah. How do you think it's going to impact regulatory and what's currently in the pipeline? Yeah, great question. Um, I think the downgrade and let's say the focus on reducing the federal deficit when you put that together could lead to more regulatory pressure. So what do I mean on that? I think it could be in the, you know, manifested mostly on the pricing side because that that crosswalks perfectly over into what we're talking about financially. And I think areas like pharma and and perhaps med tech will be, will be specifically impacted in that area. Final thoughts then on the downgrade. Look, at, at the end of the day, I think the immediate impact for healthcare and the, and the health sector is probably going to be limited. There, the long-term implications, you know, we really don't know where, where they're going to be at. 
But the bottom line is you got to think about this fundamentally, right? Anyone who's a stakeholder in, in healthcare delivery in the health sector should understand this and really monitor the fiscal as well as, and I'm saying this as we look at, at political elections coming up, those influences on these ongoing developments. And to the extent it's a warranted, and I think it probably is, adjust your strategy accordingly, right? Like revisit your strategy. There shouldn't be a five-year strategy. There should be a three-year strategy because this is the way things change. And if you think the markets aren't going to be impacted, they could be. And if you think patients aren't impacted by the market or care delivery isn't, there's a line that and a red thread that connects them all. So moving on from the downgrade, today's guest, who do we have coming on? From downgrades to upgrades, I'm really happy that we've got Tony Ulwick on the program for the podcast. And just not to give it away, but our conversations revolved around the application of some of his work in outcomes-driven innovation and jobs to be done in the healthcare space, which was really enlightening. It went way back to his early, you know, learnings in failing with the PC Junior that he that he was part of the team with an IBM to the incredible successes he's had working with Clay Christensen, who I am an incredible fan of on his work to be done theory and in Clay's book, The Innovator's Solution. So with that, look, let's welcome Tony Olwick to the show. Tony, how are you doing, my friend? Great to see you. I am doing great, Rick. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. We've had this theme of innovation, of disruption, obviously through the lens of the health sector, but what we're really getting down to now is unpacking the core principles of in today's environment, today's ecosystem, what are those first principles that hold true and what do we have to look at to change as we move and navigate the future? And I thought there's no better person than yourself to really speak to that, Tony. So that's how I'm going to set it up. What do you think? I like it. <laughs> Let's jump in. Sounds great. Listen, I, I, I always, I love adversity and folks who get beyond that. Obviously, I know your personal story and, and you had a, an experience early on with product failure, specifically IBM's PC Junior. I hate to say that's where it started from you, but I think that's a big part of how ODI, Outcomes Driven Innovation, started. Why don't you talk to us and the audience a little bit about that and how that kind of influenced and informed your perspective? Sure, Rick. That's a great place to start. You know, there's a lot of product managers out there, product people, innovators, who put their, you know, their all their energy into creating products that are really going to change the world. And we all hope we're going to do that. And that was our hope with the IBM PC Junior. We were going to compete with Apple. We we're going to beat Apple. We were going to take over the home computing market. It was going to be revolutionary. The only problem was the day after the product was introduced, the headlines in the Wall Street Journal read, the PC Junior is a flop. Ouch. Ouch is right. And of course, we said that can't be true, but it was true. You know, it took us about a year to reconcile and, and, and you know, finally realized that, wow, we made a big mistake. And that cost IBM about a billion dollars. Uh, so it wasn't a small mistake, but uh, it got me very interested in innovation because I thought, this is me starting out in the 1980s, right? I, I thought IBM didn't make mistakes. I, I didn't know that companies with that kind of resource could put out products that would fail. Uh, but as it turns out, companies do it all the time, right? In fact, they still do it all the time. And this got me very interested in innovation as a process. I started on as a manufacturing engineer at IBM. 
and then after the the I, the PC Junior debacle, I became a product planner, and uh, I sought a, a better way to innovate. That was the goal, and so this was early in the 1980s when we the things that were coming out then were like voice of the customer, house of quality, statistical process control, uh, conjoint analysis, and I learned all about all those different tools and processes only to realize that there really was no innovation process. It was kind of guessing, right? Let's, let's come up with ideas and hope they win in the marketplace. And that was certainly IBM's approach, a very technology-first mindset. But there had to be a better way, right? And so I, I spent my last six years at IBM trying to think through a better approach to innovation came up with the concept of outcome-driven innovation, and I, I left IBM in 1991 to start Stratagen, and since then we've worked with dozens, hundreds of companies uh, around the globe to help them apply a different mindset to innovation so that they could succeed with a high success rate instead of having to deal with a, uh, a low hit rate. Yeah, really fascinating, particularly when you when you put it in the time frame of what you described with, with the PC Junior. That wasn't a, I would say, from an organizational perspective, a period in, in business where failure was embraced. It wasn't like fail fast, fail often. It wasn't a sign of an enthusiastic innovation process, right? I mean, so you must have taken some hits with that as well. Yeah, absolutely. And you're right. A lot of people, even to this day, don't think innovation is a process. So th there's a problem. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Right? And of course, back then, that that thinking was more prevalent, right? It was, you know, kind of serendipity, right? That you just come up with an idea at the right time in the right market and with the right team and the right investments, and somehow it all comes together and works out. Um, but there can be a science behind it, and that's what I, I sought to figure out. Do you really... You shifted early on. One of, I think, if I can characterize it this way, your early successes with, was, was with Cordis Corporation, which I, I knew being in, in, in the healthcare field, obviously a mainstay, certainly in cardiology and cardiac-related uh, med tech years ago. But you helped them out by shifting their focus from products to process. And I think about your methodology there and its applicability at that particular time on the med tech side. And... Tell us about that and, and how it could perhaps even be scaled up for that. Just elaborate on that for us, Tony. Sure. So, you know, what, what happened, what happened back in around the 1990 timeframe is I, I, I finally realized what Theodore Levitt was telling us when he said, people don't want the quarter inch drill, they want the quarter inch hole. We've, we've all heard that, right? But it finally clicked in my head, uh, and as a process engineer, manufacturing engineer, I thought, if we could just uh, go study what people are trying to do, like creating the quarter-inch hole, instead of talking about the drill, instead of trying to create a better drill and thinking we're in the drill market, that would allow us to lay out what the customers are trying to do as a process and break it down into steps and put measurable outcomes that people want to achieve along each step of the way. And we could apply to innovation uh, the same uh, principles that we've been applying to manufacturing for years, which is statistical process control to 
uh, eliminate variability, Six Sigma to get great outputs, and automation to speed things up, right? So the thought was, we could potentially uh, break down the process and figure out how people want to get it done faster, more predictably, and better output throughput. So carrying those principles forward, we applied that first in, in Quarters Corporation. That was my first assignment, my job, after leaving IBM. And instead of talk, talking to um, interventional cardiologists about angioplasty balloons, we interviewed them to figure out what process they're trying to go through when restoring blood flow to an artery. And with that mindset, we stayed away from solutions altogether, and we just figured out all the metrics they were using to measure success. We then quantified them, meaning we asked a large number of interventional cardiologists to tell us how important each of those outcomes were in the current level of satisfaction. So we could then pinpoint where people were struggling to get the job done, if you will, right? Struggling to execute the process. And we discovered about 16 unmet needs. And the team went to work to address them. And they did. A year and a half later, they released 19 products, all of which became number one or two in the market. And their market share increased from about 2% to over 20%. So it was, it was a, a, a great uh, example of a success. And we've been able to duplicate that hundreds of times since. Yeah, great, obviously, ROI and also clinical return on the investment of time. When I think about the approach that you took to uncovering those needs, right, the, the, the metrics, the, the tasks, as you said, did you lean on your background, your engineering background, the quantitative and qualitative side of research to, to, to really leverage that level of precision, particularly when you're, when you're working in, in high reliability and high tolerance areas like, like interventional cardiology? Yeah, well, you, you're hitting on a great point. Uh, what really makes this work is that we're, we're really digging in at a very granular level. So when we talk about the measurable outcomes people are trying to achieve, we're not talking about, hey, let's make it more reliable and convenient and faster, right? What does that even mean, right? We want to get down to a, you know, a, a, an actionable level that we can innovate around, like, you know, minimize the likelihood of entering a side vessel when navigating through tortuous vessels, right, on the way to the lesion, right? That's a very precise instruction coming from the interventional cardiologist saying what, what it is they're trying to do. And so it's, the entire process is broken out in that level of granularity. So in the end, it's like reading a list of everything that an interventional cardiologist is trying to get done from beginning to end of that procedure. And it's what they're trying to do, not what they're doing, right? So in other words, we're analyzing this in problem space, not solution space, which sounds like a little nuance, but it's really the key to success here, right? What we're trying to do is to figure out what they're trying to achieve, not what they're, not what they're doing today. That's more like a process map or a customer journey map, right? What we're creating is what we call a job map, you know, something right. that we introduced in Harvard Business Review back in 2008. Uh, and by thinking about it that way, you're breaking down the problem into a hundred outcomes. And you want to figure out along what dimensions you should innovate in order to have an impact on the customer and creating value for them. That's the high level mindset. Yeah. You know, there's not a healthcare professional I know that isn't fixated on positive 
good clinical outcomes. I mean, we are all just trained that way. It's part of what we do, whether you're in the C-suite, whether you're at the, at the bedside, doesn't matter. Clinical outcomes is the first metric we look at. And my question to you is when you think about outcomes-driven innovation, it starts with outcomes. So give us a, a quick, very high-level overview of, of ODI. Sure. Uh, so, uh, yeah, I'll give you an overview of the steps that are included in the process. Um, and what's interesting here is if this is going to sound like marketing 101, because what we do is we define a market, we uncover needs, we figure out which are unmet, we determine if there's segments of people with different unmet needs, and with that information, we build out the product strategy. Sounds simple enough, right? We love the formulaic component yeah. of that, right? Everyone yeah. gets it, particularly engineers. Yes, exactly. So that part makes sense. Now, what we're going to do, though, is we're going to, we're going to uh, go through that process in problem space, not solution space. So when we define a market, we're not going to say we're in the androplasty balloon market. That's a product, right? Androplasty balloons come and go, right? What, what the cardiologist is trying to do is restore blood flow to an artery. So we're going to define a market not around a product, but around the group of people and the job the customer's trying to get done, right? Now, most companies don't define markets that way. They define it around a technology or product, things that that go away or you know, uh, become evolve, obsolete right? or yeah. evolve, right? And so if, if you're defining your market around something that's going to go away, then you're really grounding your strategy in something that's really perilous, right? right. So let's ground the strategy around a, a stable focal point for value creation because we know that interventional cardiologists have been trying to restore blood flow to an artery for, for decades, and they'll continue in the future for decades. So let's, let's focus on this stable uh, job as our market first step. Right. So then we can go define the customer's needs. What I find so intriguing about this, and we do a lot of polling in our, in, in our master classes and things like that, we ask the question, is, is there agreement on your product team as to what a need is? Not what the needs are, which are unmet. We're just saying, is there agreement on what a need is? And generally speaking, around 90% of product teams say no. There isn't agreement on what a need even is. Even though everyone's trying to come up with solutions that address unmet needs, but the sales team thinks about needs as solutions and features, and marketing thinks about them as exciters and delighters, and development thinks about them as specifications and requirements. Even amongst experts, we went out and polled 15 different experts in voice of the customer. And there's 15 definitions of what a customer need is. So the experts don't agree either. Yeah, and massive so, lack of alignment there, right? From a group that you would think, you know, their absolute goal should be complete alignment. That is the goal. You hit the nail on the head, Rick. Let's, you know, and that's what customer centricity is all about, if you want to bounce around a little bit, is to get everyone aligned around a shared understanding of what a need is, what the customer's needs are, and which of those needs are unmet. Because if you can get everyone focused on solving the right problem, you're going to create a lot of value for your client, uh, for your customers, right? And that's really the goal of the approach. What we see is companies are, are rarely short on ideas, right? They're just don't agree on what the problem is, yeah. even though everyone's trying to create value for the customer. So, yeah, we define needs, as you mentioned, as desired outcomes. 
These are the metrics, if you will, that people use to measure success when getting a job done. You know, and we do this all the time, like even cooking a meal at home. You'd say, you know, I want to minimize the likelihood of overcooking the meal. I want to minimize the time it takes to cook it evenly throughout. Right? I want to minimize the amount of prep time that's required. You, you, know, you, can, you know this, right? These are things that if they go well, you'd say, I prepared my meal very effectively. And the same is true in any, for any job. So breaking this down and figuring out what all those metrics are, although a bit of a time-consuming task, is it's the key to success. It's knowing that customer at that deep, granular, micro level, right, where we know precisely what they're trying to achieve at an, act, at an actionable level. Right. Yeah, and Tony, let me throw this at you as well. I think when you go through that process, you're identifying them. You can also extract the variables or at least smooth them out so that you have a heck of a lot less friction, if I could use that term, moving forward, and a smoother process, much more efficient. Yeah, you're absolutely right. You know, separating out the variables, variables is really the key. In fact, that's what we're trying to do. Like all, all these little variables contribute to getting the job done perfectly if you want to think of it like that. And so we want to identify every one of them. And there's often anywhere from 75 to 150 different metrics that people use to measure success. Like when we've talked to spine surgeons about spine surgery, and uh, you know we've captured 150 statements, very complex procedure, right? Uh, but that's where you have to go in order, right. to, in order to figure out where in the job you want to create value. So it's a, it's a different mindset, uh, and, and it's really required different techniques for market research. Uh, and, we, and we still see this to this day. You know, a lot of market researchers believe that you can't ask people to comment on more than 30 items or that your surveys have to last no more than 10 minutes or that could go on. Uh, but none of that's true. You know, we've been doing surveys for years that uh, – people enjoy taking because it's laying out what they're trying to achieve in a language that they can really understand and it really appeals to them. So, you know, developing these techniques to get this kind of information was really a breakthrough in, in making this a possibility. Yeah, I, I, just on your comment about the surveys, I also think the level of engagement that an individual has, if you feel included in that, what you're saying or doing is going to be used for something is always, I think, a great source of, of, of deep understanding and meaning, particularly when you're, when you're launching something. And it, it brings me to my next point, which is really the, the jobs and, and the work you've done on, just on, I'll classify it on, on, on jobs and work to be done and jobs to be done. And I want to go back to Clayton Christensen, who I, I know that you worked with, and he obviously led to the popularization of the job that customer hires a product for. And I want your thoughts on that. And as a second part, think about in the healthcare setting some examples of what we're talking about when it comes to that, that notion of, of, of the job. Thinking about the process people are trying to execute as opposed to the product they're using is, is, is the right focal point. So I, I introduced this concept to Clay Christensen back in 1999. At the time, he had just written a book called The Innovator's Dilemma, and I felt that outcome-driven innovation was a good solution to that dilemma. So I called him up, and he, being the kind gentleman that he is, asked me to come in and 
present it to him, which I did, and he liked it. You know, the concept made great sense. And what we're saying is, let's study the process people are trying to execute, not the, the product. We had conversations over a couple of years, and he was getting his uh, Innovative Solution book ready in 2002. And uh, we talked a bit more, and he said, you know, I, I don't like this word. People have underlying processes they're trying to execute. It doesn't, doesn't sound right, right? So he said, how about if we say people have jobs they're trying to get done, and it and study the underlying job they're trying to execute. And I said, yeah, that sounds great. Let's, let's, let's talk about it that way. And so he did, and he introduced that thinking in his Innovative Solution book in 2002, and it became a thing. Yeah. It, was, it was never intended to name the theory, jobs to be done theory, but that's what happened. I'll tell you what uh, mind to be, obviously working with, be around, and have not only influence your work, but collaboratively help you drive your own kind of point of inspiration and innovation for, for what you were doing. I, I want to pivot slightly on that, but build upon everything that we've said. When you think about Gen AI and, and machine learning and what's happening with digital health technology, and you, you kind of apply jobs to be done and everything we've talked about that with outcomes-driven innovation... Tell me about how those processes are going to play a role, stay relevant in this new area of beyond digital tech and, and what we're seeing right now happening, particularly in the healthcare space. You asked a question a bit earlier, Rick, to say, let's talk about some examples of, of jobs, right? Like a provider trying to diagnose a health condition or a patient trying to select a health insurance plan. That's a group of people getting a job done, right? Or ENTs trying to restore nasal airflow or individuals trying to maintain blood sugar levels within the desired range or the interventional cardiologist trying to restore blood flow in the artery or the neurosurgeon trying to protect brain cells from damage while recovering from a uh, severe uh, traumatic brain injury. Or I could go on for. By the way, and Antonia, I love that you're using outcomes in every. It's the it's the focal point of of every example you're giving is the context of outcome. Yeah, that's exactly right, and we call it at the high level. We're saying this is the job to be done, right? And then we're going to define all the other. This is the ultimate outcome in this space, right? Like OR managers trying to optimize workflow for surgical block. You know, goes into the operations area of healthcare. Or orthopedic surgeons trying to restore and maintain uh, pain-free joint function, and we've studied we've studied dozens dozens of uh, jobs in the medical space over the years. But you, you get the general idea, right? I think it's it, when you frame it that way, it's absolutely intuitive. Certainly for anyone who works in healthcare, healthcare delivery, you know, any area of the sector. It's very, very intuitive because, because we're so outcome, you know, oriented. That's true. And I, and we see it in the medical space when we're doing our interviewing as well. There's nothing better, to, in my opinion, than interviewing surgeons or nurses or medical staff that have executed these processes hundreds, thousands of times, right? And one of my cohort, cohorts, here 
We sat together with two spine surgeons for about six hours and collected 150 outcomes that described exactly what they were trying to achieve when they went through the, the surgical procedure to repair, you know, repair a, a disc in the spine. And that's what it takes, right? That's, that's the kind of mindset shift that is required in, in order to make these kinds of gains. So let's go back to where, where I was thinking with respect to the future. And again, Gen AI, machine yeah. learning, everything that's happening. Yeah. I can't think of a role that isn't going to be influenced by that, whether it's augmented or even as part of the key, say, component to delivering at least an initial answer to a problem. Yeah. How do we apply ODI jobs to be done in that framework? Yeah, that's excellent because you know, we've seen this play out before. Uh, people buy products to get a job done, right? And we can capture all the metrics people use to measure success when getting the job done. And then when we look at all those metrics, Rick, what we can see pretty quickly is that some of those can be addressed with a hardware-related product. Some require a service type of product. Some require software tools for decision-making or AI for decision-making, uh, and some require digitalization, right? So uh, so we've seen this play out. Uh, I'll give you a good example from uh, the agriculture space. We worked with uh, Bear Crop Science 12 years ago now and studied the job of growing a crop. We saw that there were a whole bunch of outcomes related to the seed, you know, planting it, that kind of thing the service components built into it. And there were about 50 outcomes that related to making better decisions as you went through the growing process. And we said, you know, there's an opportunity here for a software tool to, to really bring all this stuff together and, and, you know, line growers around getting the job done more effectively. And what this became known as is, is, is digital farming. Now it's a it's a whole thing where we digitized all those key aspects of, of growing a crop. And I see the same thing happening today, Rick, with AI. AI is a technology, right? It can be used to help get jobs done better. The question is, where in the job can we apply AI to get the job done better? So it's what my a lot of my clients are doing right now is they're going back to the data sets that they had, all these lists of outcomes for the markets they've already investigated and asking the question, can we solve this outcome with AI, this one? And what we find is that not all outcomes are solvable using AI. And, and there's different aspects of AI too. One is you know, getting the right information at the right place at the right time, which is kind of like what digitalization does as well. But then there's the predictive component as well. Like if, if this, then that. Right. And I think that's where AI kind of takes it to the next level. And, uh, and, so, and so mining the databases that they already have and just looking through the needs to see where AI is applicable is a great first step. Yeah. And, you know, I can't help but think that so many folks are going directly towards the Gen AI as the solution right? Uh, or this will give me the outcome. And, and that's where I'll start with for the answer versus I think what you're describing is put it in its proper place within the calculus. That's exactly the way you should look at it. 
Uh, like I said, you know, people buy products to get a job done, get the job done better through hardware, software, services, digitalization, AI, blockchain. You know, just keep throwing the technologies at it. It's all right. the same thing, right? Where it's all designed to help get a job done better. So the focus should be on what measurable outcomes are people trying to achieve when getting the job done? Where are they struggling? And which technologies can I apply to help them get the job done perfectly? Yeah. So let me uh, get back to the healthcare space. This is a essentially a health sector podcast. Um, although we drift into areas of technology way too often, investment, et cetera. But when I think about healthcare professionals and think about how they can really better align what they do every day, which is, look, the, the safe care of those they serve, their patients, right, with good outcomes. How can the jobs to be done framework be applied in, in the proper way? And are there any mistakes or misconceptions you've seen in its application where it doesn't work? The biggest challenge is, uh, Rick, the uh, biggest challenge, I would say, is the mindset shift. When, when we explain this kind of thinking, generally speaking, you know, a fraction of the population will say, hey, that resonates with me perfectly. That's because they have an outcome-first mindset. I think it's genetic. I don't know. But many people have the ideas-first mindset. Hey, let's just... They, they, many people believe that customers have latent needs, needs they don't know they have. So if, if they don't know what their needs are, why should we go talk to them? Let's just come up with solutions and, and put it out in front of them and see what they think, right? That's so they get stuck in this ideas first mindset. So the real challenge is this mindset shift. <laughs> yeah. And, and Tony, I, I'm sure, and I want to hear your comments on this. You have to go into organizations where the culture is so set and the antibodies in that culture could be so, you know, rabid with respect to, you know, going against new ideas that you've got to wipe the slate clean if you're going to start with this mindset shift. I mean, have you experienced that yourself? And, and it, how do you get over that, by the way? Is it just the, the proof's in the pudding? Sometimes you never get over it. You know, we're just working with a client just, just recently who couldn't get over the hump. They could not, they could not do it. We challenged their mindset. We challenged their market research practices. You know, we introduced new techniques, segmenting around need statements, doing a larger survey, they said, you can't do any of this. You know, this breaks all the rules. And uh, you know, while we see that more frequently than not, it still happens. Like I said, just recently happened with a very large company that I can't mention, not in the healthcare space, but uh, it's it's still fascinating, right? And and this is why I think we're still in business. Right, right? yeah. I, I always thought when and I wrote this my books and things like that years ago, people would read it and go, well, of course, let's just do that and be, be done with it. But, but it's amazing that, uh, you know, people want to support the status quo. They are ideas first. They don't think innovation is a process. They don't think you can understand customer needs. And that's what, that's what we're battling against. But I, I think the proof is in the pudding, you know, to say, to answer your question, what do we do? Uh, we find enough support within the organization. We get projects through ideation, so there's a product concept, and we can show upfront that this product is going to win in the market. And, and I love when we present this to clients. We show the, the the design product in the middle, and we say this product's going to win, and here's why. 
it's got this set of features. Well, why are they the right set of features? Because it addresses these outcomes. How do we know the right outcomes? Because we discovered a segment of the population in which all these outcomes are highly underserved and people are willing to pay more to get the job done better. So the solution that we've devised will solve them and you'll be able to increase market share in this 50% slice of the market. Oh, great example. Great example. And let me riff on that a second because I've, I've read and obviously I've, I've, I've read your books and, and some of the white papers that customers often have more than 100 needs in a given market. The process of identifying those needs uh, and, and leveraging outcomes-driven innovation uh, in the process, does it, it speaks directly to that, right? I mean, but it's, but it's a heavy lift. It is a heavy lift. You know, and people aren't used to that. They're used to thinking of needs as, as these higher-level statements or, 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 or solutions even. Like I said, there is no agreement on what a need is. And we spent a lot of time defining a need uh, around science, basically. We're saying, you know, people are trying to get a job done better. What does better mean? Better means faster, more predictably, with a great result, higher output throughput. That means all our statements should explain how to get the job done faster, more predictably, higher output throughput. So now that we know what a need is, now we can go capture them. And what we do, Rick, when we're interviewing uh, customers is we teach them this stuff. We, we tell them what we're doing and we tell them the kind of statements we're trying to collect. And generally, we're like in a Zoom meeting like this where we have our screens up and we're showing them what we're typing in. And we're saying, okay, so what you're saying is you want to minimize the time it takes to reach the lesion or you know, minimize the likelihood of entering a side vessel when going through a torturous path, right? And so we'll write those statements down and they'll say, yeah, that's, that's what we're trying to do, right? And so they, they see what kind of inputs we're looking for. And you know, by the first hour, they're off talking like this. They said, oh, now I know what you're looking for. But, but get this, Rick. I, this has always amazed me. In most customer interviews, the interviewer and the interviewee don't know what information they're trying to collect because they don't agree on what a need is. So... The interviewer can't tell the interviewee, here's what I'm looking for, because they don't know. So they generally have these conversations, they get these transcripts that are pages and pages long, and then they have to go later on and read through them and try to figure out what inputs are useful, Yeah. right? which is extremely inefficient. And, and so yeah, that's I, what, what came to mind was what a waste of time. You know, the lack of alignment, the, the di, not that they're disagreeing, but the, the lack of a shared, you know, construct is just nothing but a waste of time, I think, in, in so many of those cases. Yeah, ex exactly. There's a better way. <laughs> right, right. Listen, Tony, one of the things also that I read was that, that just the 20% rule, we all have our, our versions of this, but I, but I love when you look at, from your perspective, predictable innovation success, the 20% rule. And I think it's the notion that products that get the job done are 20% better or more or are very much more likely to win in the marketplace. Tell us more about your work on this, the discovery side of this. And because a lot of this podcast is about innovation, how can innovators apply this in their own work, in their own job? Yeah. Yeah. And you're on a great point. Uh, the 20% rule, I sometimes say 15, 20, but it's in this range. But here's the theory, right? And the reality. 
people won't switch to a, a new product or a new brand if it only gets the job done a teeny bit better, right? It's just, there's too much legacy, right? It's it's too hard to overcome the adoption barriers and things like that. They don't want to have to learn how to use another product or things like that. Now, uh, what companies often do is they'll they'll uncover a customer need that's unmet and in the next version of the product, they address it. Well, that's all well and good, but they're only getting the job done a little better. And it kind of goes unrecognized, right? And now six months later, they come up with the next release. They focus on one little thing and they get the job done a little better. Again, incremental improvement, nothing radical, nothing big, hard to market, right? And uh, so they're really wasting their gunpowder, if you will, mm -hmm. because as it stands right now, there there might be 20 or 30 unmet needs in the market. You need to know all of them. Well, let's discover all the unmet needs. And each iteration of the product, you, sh you should get the job done significantly better. That's what meaning, this meaning Meaning check the box off on as many of those needs as you possibly can. Within reason. Yeah, that's Within exactly reason. right. Yeah, that's exactly it. Because what you're trying to do is get the job done 15, 20% better or more. Right? So if you can get in that range, you can win. And you're not going to do it by satisfying one unmet need, generally speaking, right? You, you're going to have to go after a bunch of unmet needs. And if you can't agree on what a need is or what the needs are, which are unmet, then you are stuck, right? And so that's the problem we're trying to fix. But once you have that information, like we worked with Kroll OnTrack. This was a company that was entering the electronic evidence discovery market. They weren't even in the space, right? There are a bunch of players in there. They disrupted the whole market. Uh, by coming up with a solution that gets the job done significantly better. And what we did with them is we uncovered a, about 60 unmet needs, highly underserved market. Uh, the first iteration of the product addressed about half of them, and and they led the market for years to come. But what they would do year after year is just go after that next batch. What is the next set of unmet needs? What is the next set? Nobody could catch up with them. They were in the Gartner Gold, or is it Magic Quadrant? Oh, for 15 years, nobody could catch them, and it's because they were on the. I'd like to say it like this: they were on the most efficient path to growth. Mm -hmm. They were always focused on needs that were most unmet across the biggest customer population. And if you have those insights, you can be extraordinarily efficient at creating customer value, being customer centric, and of course that all equates back to revenue growth and you know company growth in general. Let me pull in outcomes-driven innovation, jobs to be done together, package them together in my mind, and think about the challenge that healthcare just puts on the table, healthcare delivery across the board. And Tony, just, just describe to me how the process, both of those processes, either together or independently, can be applied in, in the healthcare delivery space. And I'm saying this because, look, we all know this, most expensive per capita, when you take a look at life expectancy going backwards, some of the stats we have are obviously less than admirable here in the United States. There is a lot of work to be done. And that work comes down to we need better outcomes and someone's got to take a look at the jobs that we're doing. So when I think about outcomes and I think about jobs, it, it's just this is the place to start. So tell me, you know, I'm sure you're working in the space. You described this obviously in, in some of our conversation. But 
Where do you go from there? How do you apply it? And what would you say if you had a room full of hospital CEOs that Stratagen and ODI and jobs to be done could do for their organizations? Yeah, that's a great question. And, you know, this market, just healthcare uh, in general, is one of the more complicated markets that exist. When people talk about getting started and applying ODI and where to innovate, the biggest question often arises is, well, who are we trying to create value for, right? And it's not an easy question to answer. Uh, in a typical surgical procedure, for example, you have the surgeon who's performing the procedure. You have the nurse and staff that's supporting it. Uh, you have the patient who's benefiting from the surgical procedure. You have the, the buying group inside the hospital that's decided what tools to purchase to perform the procedure. You've got the the payers deciding what they're going to cover. Right? There's a lot. There's a lot of moving parts. It's a complicated ecosystem. It's not like it's consumer product goods, where you know the buyer, the user, and the, the people supporting the product are all the same person. Okay. You know, in the medical space, you have biomeds, right? You've got them uh, supporting uh, equipment, cleaning equipment, and so on. So the first question is, who, do you tr who are you trying to create value for? And I've seen uh, the trend in the past 10 years in medical um, is that there's kind of a dual path, and that is the path between the patient and the provider. Um Years ago, when I first started this, many companies would just leave the patient out of the equation completely. And they'd just talk about the provider and what the provider needs and, and so on, and, and hope that the provider is talking about the needs that the customer, the, the patient wants as well. And to a large degree, they do. But what we've seen more recently, and what I recommend to companies getting started, is lay out the patient's journey job they're trying to get done, not the not the journey they're going through, but what is the job they're trying to get done? And what is the job the provider's trying to get done? At a high level, patients are trying to diagnose and treat a health condition a health condition. And providers are trying to diagnose and treat a health condition. There's a lot of synergy there, right? And what you've seen in recent years, of course, are patients are trying to do the job themselves, right? They're on Google, right. they're trying to figure out how to diagnose things and so on. So they're finding workaround solutions to get the job done better in, in their mind. But uh, what we're what we're seeing now is how can providers be more in line with what the patients are trying to accomplish? And it's knowing both journeys. So what we often do is we create our job maps. What is the patient trying to do? What is the provider trying to do? And you know what? They better be intertwined very nicely. <laughs> Yeah, it's more now, than a convergence. It's a, yeah. it's it's an overlay, right? Yes, that's right. One's feeding the other. If if they want this, they should be doing this. If they want that, they should be doing right. It should follow. Now you can only imagine what some of these maps look like right now when you do that exercise. They don't don't match at all, right? <laughs> Which of course is part of the problem. So you know what I would suggest to companies in this space is to just think about the entire ecosystem incorporate from beginning to end, like we see it in, in pharma companies as well. They're looking to, you know, they may make drugs, but what they're looking at now is the entire care pathway. 
from beginning to end. You know, the drug is part of the treatment, but that's only part of what the patient's trying to do, right? They're trying to diagnose, they're trying to pick the best treatment option, get treated, monitor the treatment condition, make modifications to treatment, and, and so on, right? So it's more than just delivering the drug. There's, there's a lot more value to be understood and created and delivered. And we've, we've worked with a number of companies in pharma who, who've recognized this and have been uh, heading down that path as well. You know, it's that, that entire journey and, and all of the you know, chatter that could distract that's around that, particularly in, in today, today's world with social media, et cetera. You need to have that aligned focus and that singular outcome as a, as at least a, a goal. That's what comes to mind for me. And I, that's what I love about outcomes-driven innovation, particularly uh, with startups in the healthcare space. And, and not only that, but on the care delivery side. Yeah. Uh, Tony, let me, let me wrap things up with this final question. With your experience, your insights, obviously having worked with so many companies you know, around the world, what advice would you give to, to healthcare innovators specifically who want to create those breaks breakthrough solutions, those game-changing solutions that we really need for their patients, for, for customers and consumers. So what, what would it be? What, how could you distill it down if you're going to give advice to these, you know, aspiring healthcare innovators? First, pick your market, you know, decide who you're going to go after, what, what group of people and what job. And define your market, then define the needs, then define the product concept, right? Solve for one variable at a time instead of trying to do all three. And that really simplifies the process quite dramatically. So you're not stuck in this recursive loop because you don't want to run out of money before you come up with the answer, right? So this, talk, this, talk, about, talk about a dilemma. There's no doubt. Yeah. Well, Tony, this has been a, a master class in obviously outcomes-driven innovation. But even more than that, I think it's given myself and I'm, I'm sure the folks who are listening in a better idea of how they can map their own journey if there's, they're kicking off a new product or platform or program. And of course, you're a resource out there with Stratagen that uh, they can call upon. So thank you so much for being on the Healthcare Nation podcast, my friend. It's great to see you. And looking forward to uh, what you're going to be doing in the future. Rick, thanks so much. I appreciate the invite. It was a great conversation. Thank you. And to our guests, thanks for joining us for the Healthcare Nation podcast. The opinions expressed by the host and guests are for informational purposes only and not associated with any companies or academic institutions. Please follow us wherever you listen to your podcast, as well as our YouTube channel, Healthcare Nation Podcast. And if you have any questions or want to contact us, please reach out to healthcarenationpodcast.com.